Today's sermon is titled, Out with the Old, In with the New. Out with the Old, In with the New. Really, the next uh, three weeks, this week and the following two weeks, are going to kind of be on this theme, Out with the Old, In with the New. So Katie and I, uh, over the last couple of months, have been doing some some house renovations. And one of our most recent uh, projects was redoing our master bath. Now, when you hear that, don't hear moving plumbing and putting in all, I can't do any of that. What I actually did was just cosmetic, like putting lipstick on a pig, right? That's what they say about it. Now, I am terrible at painting. I'm way too impatient. I get all kinds of streaks and and, and splatters everywhere, but the job gets done and it gets done quickly, but I'm really bad at painting. However, I love going to Home Depot and buying the paint. That machine that they stick the paint can in, that thing is so cool. Like you have this base layer of white paint, you pick this color off the wall, they put a couple of drops into that paint can, they throw it in that machine and it comes out a brand new color. Uh, It's it's just this incredible experience experience where it's kind of this old white paint is now something altogether new. Now, when we consider our walk with Jesus, when we come to faith in him, there's kind of two ways to view this thing. It's kind of like Jesus are those drops of paint into that fresh white paint. Jesus is just kind of a couple of drops in our life. He's an addition to our life, but we never actually shake that paint can up and it doesn't become a new color. It's still white with some splatters of blue in it. The better way to think about our walk with Jesus is you've got this base uh, paint, this white colored paint. You put a couple drops of blue in it. It gets all shooken up. It gets into every crack and crevice and corner of that. You open the top off of it and it's a brand new color that we are no longer that, that old white paint. We're now something brand new altogether. It's out with the old and in with the new. Now, here's why I say that. When we consider our walk with Jesus, it's not like we're just pairing Jesus, the the old and the new, or it's not Jesus just complementing our old life. It's not just Jesus in addition to our old life. It's something altogether different. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are brand new. The old no longer exists. The old has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who lives, but it's Christ who lives and reigns and rules and governs over every square inch of our life. We are brand new people. Now, the flow of the text as we work through Mark over the the next couple of months, couple of months, next eight months, really, we're, we're working through it. What just happened last week is Jesus sparked a controversy. So in verses 13 through 17, Jesus is walking along, he's just finished preaching, and he sees Levi, the tax collector, and remember, tax collectors are the most despised and hated of people in amongst the Jewish people. And Jesus sees Levi and he says, hey, come follow me. And not only that, but Jesus takes it to the next level and he goes and he eats in the home. And the text says with many tax collectors and many sinners. And Jesus has sparked a controversy where the Pharisees who were the religious elite see this and they're angered by this. Why is Jesus associating with the lowliest, the most sinful and the most marginalized of society? How can he possibly be doing this? This is offensive. Now, Uh, Let me just do a side note. This is not the point of today, 
But as I read this, Jesus is having this party with sinners. This is permission, Christian, for us to have parties with sinners. Let us be hospitable people where we open our homes and we invite our neighbors and our friends and our family and we eat and we laugh and we share stories and we ask questions and we eat good food and we drink good drink and we have good laughs and we could be accused like Jesus of not just hanging out with a bunch of religious elite in our Christian cocoons, but we can be accused. Why are you so associating with those people. Like, let us be so missional that we would be like Jesus labeled as friend of sinners, okay? That's just a side note there. But what Jesus has done as he parties with these sinners is the Pharisees are incensed and they make this accusation about Jesus. Why is he doing this? And then Jesus will answer their question with three illustrations. He gives the illustration of a wedding. He gives the illustration of a garment and the illustration of an old wineskin. And underneath all of those illustrations is the same meaning, out with the old, out with the old way, out with the old man, in with the new by Jesus's grace. So that's just the two parts of today's sermon. We're gonna consider what is the old, out with the old, and then we're gonna look at the new. What is the new through Jesus? All right, part number one, out with the old, out with the old. Let's reread verses 18 through 20 together. Mark chapter two, verses 18 through 20. The wind's blowing these pages around. I'll get there. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's the question right there. And here's Jesus's response. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. All right, so the Pharisees, they're watching this party. Jesus is eating with sinners. And if you've ever been in a classroom or a conference setting and that person raises their hand and you call on them and they say, hey, this is, this is actually more of a statement than a question. And we all kind of hold our breath because we don't know what's coming next. That's what happens with the Pharisees in this moment. What they're actually doing, this isn't a question they ask of Jesus. This is more an accusation they're making of Jesus. When they say, we're over here fasting, why? Why aren't you guys fasting? In essence, they're accusing Jesus of disobeying God's law. They're accusing Jesus of being a sinner. So, so what, what's going on is Jesus throughout Mark has claimed to be the Messiah. He's claimed to be God in the flesh. He's claimed to forgive sins. He has healed people, lepers and paralytics to validate these claims he is making to being God and to being the savior of the world. But then he starts associating with sinners and the Pharisees just cannot believe this. They're saying, no, no, no. If you are who you say you are, then why aren't you as holy as us? Why aren't you fasting like we are? Why aren't you doing the things that we are doing. You see, the Pharisees, they were experts in the Old Testament law, teachers of the Old Testament law. So much so that the Pharisees, they didn't just obey the Old Testament law. They also expanded upon it, added their own rules and opinions to it, and then mandated it as a religion for all of Israel. They put a yoke on God's people that God himself did not put on them. 
As, we, as we've worked through our Bible reading plans together, Story Church, and just here's your reminder, keep on keeping on. I know Leviticus, it gets long, Numbers, and, and all those things, but let's press through. Like God's word is always worth it. But as we're reading through, what we're seeing are all kinds of rituals and laws and traditions and, and ceremonies. When it comes to fasting in the Old Testament, there's actually only one fast that was mandated for all of Israel. And there's only one fast that carries over and is mentioned in the New Testament in Acts chapter 27. It was called the fast on the day of atonement, where God's people would fast in anticipation of Jesus the Messiah atoning, paying for their sins, covering their sins. However, the Pharisees, they looked at every ritual, every ceremony, every law, and they turned it to a dial, on the dial to a level 13 and expanded upon it. Actually, what the Pharisees did is they didn't just fast on the day of atonement. They also fasted every week on Mondays and on Thursdays. Like if you know who Jocko is, Jocko would love the Pharisees because that guy is like all about what we call intermittent fasting, which is basically skipping a meal. It's not that hard to do. Okay. Fast for a full day and then come talk to me about fasting. What the, what the scribes there, the Pharisees did is they turned it up to a dial, a level 13 on the dial and they made so many fasts, law for all of God's people. Fast on Monday, fast on Thursday, fast on the day of atonement, fast with every ceremony to, to the point where it's like, when are we gonna eat? Are we ever gonna stop fasting and are we gonna start feasting? And underneath this fasting, underneath these rules, underneath this man-made religion by the Pharisees was a works-based righteousness where they thought they could pay for their own sins, where they thought they could earn God's grace through their own obedience to the fasting laws. Now, all that we call that is legalism. Okay, so I'm gonna define legalism for you here. It's gonna be on the screen. Here's what I mean when I say legalism. Legalism is the belief that our obedience to the law is our grounds of acceptance before God. Do you hear how man-centered that is? My obedience earns my faith in God, that I can earn God's grace through my law abiding. The Pharisees in this situation thought they could cause God to love them through their fasting above and beyond. Now, here's one thing I want us to keep in mind as we journey through Mark together. When we read Mark, when we read the stories of Jesus, we need to refuse the propensity to place ourselves in Jesus' shoes. We're not Jesus. Jesus is the hero and he stands alone as the hero. We're actually the Pharisees in this story. We're the ones that are legalists trying to earn God's grace through our own effort, our own obedience, trying to make God love us by our law abiding. We are the Pharisees in need of Jesus to be our hero. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says this, beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. 
We are all born with a natural tendency to believe we can earn God's grace and that we deserve heaven. We are all Pharisees. We are all little legalists. So I wanna ask the question, what does that legalism look like today? Because I'm willing to bet it's not fasting for any of us around here, right? Fasting is not a thing in America, right? The most gluttonous society in all of human history. Fasting is not a thing for us. So what does legalism look like today and why is it so dangerous for us, okay? First, what does legalism look like today? Let me try and put legalism in a little bit of an equation. I tried to get fancy this week, and when Tyler was putting the slides together, he's like, this, this ain't gonna work. So we're gonna see what we can do with this. Here's what the equation looks like on the screen here. Legalistic living means that we think our good works will lead to God's grace with the wrong posture of heart. Let me read that again. Our good works leading to God's grace with the wrong posture of heart. Let me walk through this for us. A legalist like the Pharisees will say, my good works, my law keeping, my law abiding is the grounds of my acceptance before God. This is what the Pharisees are doing here with their fasting. They're not just fasting when God mandates it. They're fasting above and beyond and being rigid about it, thinking it will earn them God's grace. This is what we can call salvific legalism. Here's what I mean by that legalism that leads to our salvation. So we think we can do everything by our own effort to just deny ourselves sin to, in order to save ourselves. This is salvific legalism. But there's a far more dangerous and a far more sinister form of legalism that's more common for us today. I'll call it well-intentioned legalism. Well-intentioned legalism is to say, I stay accepted by God through my law abiding. Yeah, sure, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. And, and at that moment, God saved me. But man, oh man, I gotta do everything I can by my own effort to keep myself saved. Surely God loved me at the moment he saved me, but I must do everything I can to maintain that love for me. Here's how this might work out for us. We think about the spiritual disciplines we see in the New Testament and we do it as a form of well-intentioned legalism. I'm gonna pray as a means to impress God and to impress others, right? This is where we begin praying in King James Version and, and super long prayers that are eloquent and really don't make sense to anyone. And we're just praying out loud for others to hear us so that people might be impressed by us or God might be impressed by our prayers. We do Bible reading as a way and a means of, of removing our guilt that when we sin and we feel dirty for our sin, we go to our Bibles to try and make God love us again. We increase in our generosity and our giving as an act of feeling better about ourselves. Maybe I had a bad week, so I'm gonna give a little extra in my tithe this week to earn God's love back for me. Or, or, or we go to home group or we come to the service or we serve or we live on mission to get one more week of God's love. If I just show up Sunday at nine or for our church, 907 to 910. If I just show up at that time, then man, God's gonna finally love me for one more week. Now, all of those are good things. Prayer, Bible reading, serving, mission, which is why I say this is well-intentioned legalism. We should be a praying people. We should be a people of the word, a people marked by generosity, which is why the third part of that equation is so important. We have in our legalism the wrong posture of heart. We're trying to earn 
earn God's grace through our effort in spiritual disciplines. We don't pray, Christian, to impress God. We pray because we are impressed by God. We don't read our Bibles to remove the guilt. We read our Bibles to hear the story of one who came and paid the price for all of our guilt and removed it forever. We don't, we don't increase in generosity as an act of feeling better about ourselves. We increase in our generosity because Christ has made us rich in him. We don't go to home group. We don't serve, show up on Sundays or live on mission in order to earn one more week of God's love. We do those things because we are vessels of God's love that we already possess because of Jesus Christ. There is a spirit of legalism that is born out of the heart that says this, I'm going to do for God without being with God. Our doing for God is divorced from being with God and in his presence. It is simple rule abiding, not worship of God through our obedience. You see, friends, that the truth is our effort did not save us and our effort cannot keep us saved. There is nothing we can do to change our identity, an identity in Jesus Christ that has been freely received by grace and not achieved via effort. So why is legalism so dangerous? Well, friends, there's only two possible outcomes when it comes to legalism. The first outcome with legalistic living is self-loathing. This is ground in, grounded in comparison, where, where we consider these disciplines, praying and Bible reading and serving and giving, and we look outward and we see others and we say, man, that person prays more than me or that person knows more of their Bible than me, or that person gives and serves more than me. Therefore, God must not love me as much as they, God loves that person or him or her. And we begin to self-loathe, self-hatred because we just don't stack up with others. The second end to legalistic living is spiritual pride. Again, it's based in comparison where we look out and we say, well, I pray better than that person or I give more than that person or that person's not as mature as me. Therefore, God must love me more than he loves them. And that's just spiritual pride. And the scriptures tell us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when we live legalistically, we're just heading straight into self-loathing or spiritual pride, and they're both dangerous for our life with Jesus. And here's the great irony of legalism. The very thing we're trying to avoid is the thing that legalism leads you to. Here's what I mean by that. In our attempts to keep laws, God's law and earn God's grace through our effort, what we're trying to do is save ourselves and remove our sin. Well, when we read the scriptures, the scriptures tell us time and time again, the place of God's law in our life is to be a mirror into our souls to show us how weak and sinful we are and how we could never perfectly keep God's law and we could never save ourselves. So we work ourselves to the bone and we give all kinds of effort trying to earn God's love through obeying his law when God says, no, no, the law is there to show you your need for me. You could never save yourself. And so we are head going headlong into condemning ourselves through our legalism. Out with the old, out with the legalism. 
So here are some diagnostic questions for us to discover the legalist within. Just, just four or five questions I've got for us to consider. And if you're a legalist like me, you're gonna answer it like me. Do you know what to say, but do not do what you say? Here's what I mean by that. This is like the parents saying, do as I say, not as I do, which number one, that is horrible parenting. And number two, like we're putting a, a, a yoke of burden on our children. We're not even putting it on ourselves. This is what legalists do. We set standards for others that we don't intend to keep ourselves. Do we know what to say, but we don't do what we say? Number two, do we practice our faith to seen, be seen by others, but we don't practice our faith in private? Do your public and private personas match up? Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs where the outside looks pretty and put together, but the inside is dingy and dark. Do we add our own convictions and traditions to God's command? Do we make our convictions binding for everyone? Do we lack love for people and love for God? That's a good sign of legalism. Do we look down upon others who aren't as mature as us? That's spiritual pride. And then finally, and most importantly, do you cover your sin instead of confessing it and repenting of it? You see, a legalist will think that they can save themselves. So instead of openly dragging their sin into the light, they try to cover it, atone for it themselves and earn God's grace again. But the Christian realizes our sin is already paid for by Jesus. We are freely and fully and forever forgiven by him. So when I sin, I don't run from God, I run to God. That's grace-based living. A legalist doesn't run to God in their sin. They run from God and try to save themselves. So again, if you answered those questions like me, then you're a little legalist like me. There's a better way, a new way through Jesus. So point number two, out with the old, in with the new. In with the new. Here's what the new way of Jesus looks like. And I'm do that math equation again on the screen. Again, I tried, guys. It didn't work out, but that's okay. We're doing this together. Instead of legalistic living, here's what Christian living looks like. It is God's grace that leads to our good works with the right posture of heart. God's grace propels us forward into living for God with a heart wrapped up in love of God. So in the rest of the story I just read earlier, Jesus gives three illustrations. The, the illustration of a wedding, the illustration of a garment, and the illustration of a wineskin. And they all have the same meaning. Jesus is saying it's in with the new, that you have a new life through me. Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. I have come to save you. Let the party start. Let the wedding begin. Do you fast at weddings? You don't. If you got invited to a wedding where they said we're not gonna eat, you wouldn't show up to that wedding, would you? That would, like, or you got an invitation in the mail. It had like tombstones on it. It was set in a graveyard. It's like dark and black. And it's like, hey, where all black is gonna be. That's a funeral. Jesus is saying the wedding has begun. I've come to save you. Out with the old, death is no more. It's now life in me. Let's celebrate life and hope and joy like we would at a wedding. And then he gives the illustration of a garment. He, he says, listen, I'm not like a patch you just put on your life. I don't just cover up the hole in your life. I don't just cover up the wound in your life. If you do that on a garment, the second it gets wet and it dries, what happens? It shrinks and it tears away and the, the new hole is larger than the old hole used to be. Jesus is saying, I don't just become a patch in your life. I came to bring you a brand new garment. 
And then he gives the illustration of a wineskin. Wineskins were just made from, from goat skin, and they were little canteen-like structures, and you would put wine in them, but you only got one use out of that wineskin. And as it dried up and as the sun beat down on it, the wineskin would become frail and brittle. And if you tried to put fresh wine into that old wineskin, because of how brittle it is, it would just fall apart. And the text says you would lose your wine, which sounds to me like a bummer. You would lose your wine to be on the ground. You, you might lick it off the ground. I don't know, my son would. But I don't know what you do with that. You just lose the wine. Jesus is saying, don't, you don't just pour a little bit of me into your old self. I make you a new wineskin. It's out with the old, in with the new. In other words, we don't add Jesus to our old way of living. We don't ask Jesus to just cover up parts of us. We get new life, new heart, new names, new living, new forgiveness through Jesus. This is the way 2 Corinthians 5 puts it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old, it's dead. It has passed away. Behold, the new is alive and here and present. This is the way of grace. You see, God knew we could never fulfill the law. We would fail to keep the law. God knows that we could never ever do anything to earn his love, his favor, or his salvation, which is what makes the good news of the gospel so good to us because God knew that we could not keep the law, so he sent another one to keep the law in our place and to give to us his record as he takes our record of failure from us, Jesus gives us his record of success. It is the Christian faith alone that says we freely receive God's gracious salvation. It is the Christian faith alone that says you cannot earn my favor, you cannot earn my love, you cannot earn my kindness, but you don't have to earn it. It's a free gift of grace. Every other worldview, every other philosophy, every other religion, you have to earn your way to enlightenment. You have to earn your way to nirvana. You have to earn your way to your PhD. It is the Christian faith alone that says Get it by grace for free. Where God knew we would fail, he sent us his son, Jesus. It is the grace of God alone that remedies every form of our little legalistic hearts. Salvific legalism, I can earn my salvation through my effort. God says, you can't save yourself, but Jesus can maintaining your salvation through well-intentioned legalism. It is God that says you cannot lose your salvation. You didn't earn it, you can't lose it. You can't keep your own salvation, which is why Jesus is gonna keep you. Jesus clings tightly to you. From beginning to last, our salvation is the work of Jesus and his grace alone. The only thing we participate in is our sin, which makes salvation necessary. It is Jesus who comes to say, I will save you and I will keep you. Can I tell you something, Christian? Right now, at this very moment, hear me, God is madly in love with you. Right now, at this very moment, God's favor is all over you. Right now, at this very moment, God delights in you and smiles over you. The scripture says he sings over you. He is delighted with you. And it's the same as it was five seconds ago. It's the same as it will be five seconds from now. It's the same as it will be five millennia from now. But can I tell you something else? It has nothing to do with you. 
God's love is all over you. God is madly in love with you because when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. The old's passed away. It has been crucified. What he sees now is his son, Jesus, clothing you. When God's favor is all over you, it's not because you've earned it via your effort. It's just because he sees Jesus, not you. God's smile is upon you and God is delighted with you and God sings over you, not because you made yourself worthy of his kindness and his favor, but because the worthy one, Jesus Christ, exchanged his resume for yours. God is unchanging and unflinching in his love towards you, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And that's cause to celebrate because our hearts are bent towards legalism, bent away from Jesus. And the invitation of this text is, listen, let the old pass away. Let the new come. Trust in Jesus. He's enough. It's the reason why we sing all the time around here that Jesus is the center of it all, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is enough because we wanna look in the mirror and say, I'm not enough. I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. All my fasting, all my, whatever I wanna do, I, I think I can save myself. I think I can keep my salvation. No, no, no. The gospel says, let go of that burden. Exchange that for the burden of Jesus, which is light and easy exchange it for the work of Christ in your place. And this grace should overcome and crush the little legalists living in all of our hearts. You see, it's the grace of God that says, I want to pray because my God hears me and my God wants to be with me. It is the grace of God that says, I wanna read my Bible because it's in my Bible where I get more of this God and more of his presence and I experience more of his goodness. It is the grace of God that says, I give because God gave me everything. I didn't earn a single thing. It is the grace of God that says, I go to church, I participate in home group, I serve others, not to earn God's love, but to be a conduit of God's love that already dwells within me. God's grace is the starting point and staying point for the whole of the Christian life, and we never graduate from it. So God's grace is what propels us into glad obedience where we do desire to be holy and we do desire to be obedient and we do desire to follow Christ, but not as a means of getting God's love, but as a means of responding to God's love. In Christ-centered living, the means for our living and the end of our living is the grace of God. It is the grace of God, the spirit of God, the strength of God that causes us to live. And it is the glory of God that motivates us to live, not the glory of ourselves. Now, the key to this text, out with the old, in with the new. What's really clear is that the old and the new are completely incompatible. A new patch is incompatible with an old garment, New wine is incompatible with an old wineskin. Celebrating a funeral while you're at a wedding is incompatible. Legalistic living and Christ-centered grace living are completely incompatible. So let me try and give us a few ways that we can combat the legalism and press into grace. Press into grace. Number one, consider the source. Listen, legalism is so hard to overcome because we believe God is telling us to do better, try harder, and be more good. That's what we think God's telling us. Friend, that's nowhere in the Bible. 
The Bible doesn't say that. That's a lie you're telling yourself. That's a lie Satan is telling you and we're believing. Let us eradicate the lie. The God of the Bible says you can't do better, but Christ has already done better in your place. Consider the source. What do the promises of God say to us? Romans chapter eight begins so beautifully. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the spirit has set you free. The spirit has set you free from bondage. And so we, set, we live as freed people knowing that we're not condemned because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. And once we are saved by Christ, we're always saved by Christ. There is no condemnation, Christian. That's what God says to you. So when I say consider the source, when something is telling you to do better and try harder, that's a lie. God says, I've forgiven you, I love you, and ain't nothing gonna change that. Consider the source. Number two, have fun. Seriously, have fun. Legalists hate fun. Legalists hate laughing. Let me tell you something. God loves fun and God loves laughing. Martin Luther would oftentimes say when he felt most condemned by Satan, he would fight this feeling by hanging out with good friends, eating good food, having good belly laughs, and playing good games. Why? It's in this goodness that we get a reminder of the character of God. All the good in this life comes by the hand of God. Everything we have is a gift of the hand of God. So when we're eating a good meal, when we're having good drink, when we're playing fun games, when we're watching funny comedians, this is a reflection of God's goodness to us. And we're supposed to enjoy the good gifts of this world. We're supposed to be stewards of these things. And this is meant to lift our eyes to see how beautiful God is, to see how good God is. And we then therefore ignore Satan and his condemnation. And all we see is God, God's goodness to us. Listen, on Sunday uh, evenings, most Sundays, here's what happens for me. I go home, we wrestle the kids to sleep for a nap time after lunch. And then at nap time, I'm sitting there thinking about Sunday. We should tweak this. We should work on that. Man, I wish I would have said this differently. I wish I would have said that better. And all this is is Satan trying to wash over me, condemnation. You know what I do? Sunday evenings, I get together with some good friends of mine and we have good meal, good drink, good laughs. We don't talk about church and we make fun of each other and it's good. (laughs) And the staff, a couple times a year, we get away. We go up to Lake Arrowhead by, by a generous gift of some people to let us stay in their cabin. And here's what we do. Yeah, we do some strategy for the next year, but mostly what we do, we play games and we eat good food and we have good drink and we go on hikes and we walk around and we encourage each other. Why? Because we wanna have fun and we're gonna fight the feelings of condemnation by celebrating God's goodness to us. Have fun, Christian. Finally, number three, recognize your limits. We're all human. God knows this. God knows you're frail and feeble and fallen. He knows you're not gonna keep the law, which is why he gave you Jesus. When, when a legalist bumps up on their limitations, what they try to do is power through, press through, pretend everything's okay and try harder. When a gra- grace-saturated person bumps up against their limits, what do they do? They pull back and they rest in the finished work of Jesus. They don't try to press through and try harder. Robert Murray McShane says it this way way. For every look to self, give 10 looks to Christ. Every time we want to look inward, every time we want to see ourselves, we're going to see our limits. We're going to try to overcome them by our own effort. Stop looking at yourself, Christian. Look at Jesus. 
Every time you wanna look at yourself, every time you're tempted to be down on yourself, every time you're tempted to self-loathe or walk in spiritual pride, look to Christ Jesus. You're limited to overcome your own sin, but Christ has already done that. Look to him. You are limited to make yourself holy, but Christ has already made you holy. Look to him. You are limited to make yourself lovable by God, but Christ has already first loved you. Look to him. What is your job? See your limits and then look at the un limited one and trust all the more in him. Guys, listen, I want Story Church to be a holy place. I want us to be a disciplined place, but I want us to get this equation right. I don't want us to be holy and disciplined because we're little legalists trying to make God love us just a little bit more. That is crushing and exhausting, and frankly, it's not appealing to anyone in our community. I want us to be a place that is holy and disciplined because we are reveling in the sin-crushing, forgiveness-giving, wrath-bearing, joy-giving, shackle-breaking, bondage-freeing, Christ-exalting, good news of Jesus Christ, the one who has set us free. You know the truth and the truth has set you free. And if you are free, then live as a freed person. Don't be a legalist. Press into the finished work of Jesus in your place. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Out with the old, in with the new. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace that even as we hear this, it's a little bit offensive to the legalist within where we think we can save ourselves. Surely this applies to some people, but it doesn't apply to me. God, help us to eradicate that lie. We can do nothing to save ourselves. God, may your grace pour out on this place. May your love pour out on this place. May you free us from our sin and from the exhausting work of trying to save ourselves. And will we just rest easy in the finished work of Jesus Christ? He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. He is keeping us saved. It is all his work. And so God, would you help us just to loosen the grips of control over our own lives and trust all the more in the grace of Jesus Christ. If anyone is far off, would you draw them near. If anyone's stuck in sin, would you free them? If anyone is walking in unforgiveness, would you give them forgiveness, God? This is your work. You be glorified through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.